Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, guys, we had a really, really good podcast. I would actually put it in my top 10 podcasts I've ever done this week with uh, Deborah Powney. She is a PhD candidate over in the UK that I recently uh, met, interacted with, had some great conversation with, and then I invited her onto my podcast because she had both marketing experience for well over a decade in, um, in the UK and then uh, pursue is now pursuing a uh, psychology career. Uh, so she has sort of got sort of a, a very professional view of both ends of how uh, advertising, marketing, messaging, image, brand, you know, all that stuff, all those, those catchphrases and keywords are utilized to manipulate us, you, me, all of us, and anybody out there who thinks, and I'm really serious about this, I, I, am, I, I almost laugh out loud now when I hear or see people assert to me in the comments or in person that they are immune to cultic influences. They've never been affected by propaganda. They are immune to advertising. It doesn't work on them. I always just laugh out loud at that because um, there is no human being for which those statements are true. And it's really just a matter of learning about the levels of manipulation that are around us all the time. And I want people to be aware of these things because you can't do anything about it. And you certainly can't push back against it if you don't know about it. And so it's not about how, you know, everybody in the whole world is awful and it's very nihilistic and there's nothing we can do about it. And it's not it's not like that. I'm not trying to uh, bring these things up to alarm people. I'm bringing these things up and talking about them in such detail because I find them fascinating, for one. And two, um, I just want people to you know, like I said, you can't, you know, you can't know, you can't do something about anything in your life, uh, and you can't really exert what you would understand as free will in your life if you don't know how these hidden influences and persuaders and manipulation are happening. So that's why it's of interest to me and why I hope I can generate some interest uh, with you guys on that. All right, so that all being said, I wanted to put a quick plug in this week for my book, Scientology A to Xenu. Here it is up here on the screen. I was just recently reviewing this and and sort of uh, giving myself a real pat on the back about this book because it's really quite a thorough takedown on the subject of Scientology. And if you guys have been attracted to my channel because of that topic, then you really, really do need to get this book and read it because it will really break it down for you and you will have so many answers to so many questions about it. All right, with all of that being said, now let's get on with your questions for this week. Kevin Zay. Hey Chris, I really enjoyed your most recent live show about social media addiction. When it comes to oversharing on social media platforms like Facebook, if someone I know posts items to their page more than, say, two or three times per day, they normally get unfollowed. That, or if the only thing they ever share is items related to politics. Now, having said all of this, here is my question. Is there something in the human psyche that predisposes certain people to this type of behavior? 
Hey, thanks for the question, Kevin. And I think what you see, what you're seeing on social media is a combination of factors between both, um, you know, people's ideas about, want, you know, well, wanting to share ideas, wanting to uh, help others, wanting to alert others, wanting to inform others. Um, I think that's, you know, one of the motivations you see for people posting, especially politically on social media. But there's also the other side of that, which is people are doing that because they feel riled up. They feel, uh, you know, especially over the last few years, the the feuding, the, the, the you know, the, the amount of like head-on-head clashing that's occurring on the subject of politics or social issues has been really ramped up, and it's really quite intense. And the formulas, the algorithms that social media operates on are such that they are trying to keep your eyes on the screen for as long as possible. Truth is not part of that equation. It is simply that information that you want to see that will keep you there. That's what the algorithms are feeding you. And the more we know that, the more we can take actions to uh, curb that behavior on our part because we shouldn't be spending hours and hours and hours of our day with our eyes glued to a screen. That's not good for us for a number of reasons. Um, the emotional you know, ramp up and anxiety you know, inducing um, um, media that we are exposed to or that is fed to us right? That's that's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us enthralled. It's what keeps us like, oh my God, right? Is that you'll, you'll get a lot more traction freaking people out than you will in terms of keeping their attention on you than if you are giving a message of happiness and joy and everything's fine and isn't this all good? I mean, people want to hear good news. No, don't get me wrong. Of course they do. But they are organically attracted to controversy, if it bleeds, it leads, um, you know, that kind of thing because of the way our brains work and because of the way our attention works, where we are supposed to be focusing our attention in the environment is on things that are novel. And and if given a choice between, you know, non-threatening and threatening, we will keep our attention on the threatening thing in our environment all day, every day, if it's sitting right there. I mean, imagine as a simple, stupid analogy, if you're in your living room and the TV's on and, um, you know, life is going on as usual, let's say everything's pretty chill except for the tiger that's sitting crouched in the corner of your living room staring at you. Now, if that were the case, that that tiger were sitting there and it wasn't moving and it was just giving you the beady eye, Odds are you would be completely enthralled by that tiger, and it would take a great deal of effort for you to get your eyes off of that tiger because that is the biggest and most dangerous threat in your environment, and it's going to stay there, and your attention is going to stay riveted on it for as long as that thing is there. You can't afford to take your eyes off it. Well, that's a silly example, but... It's the kind of headspace we get into when we are being fed this constant diet of um, you know, bad news propaganda, okay? And that's, uh, that's kind of a big part of how we are stuck on social media. Now, it's not all bad news. I'm stressing that part of it because of the fact that we know, um, you know, bad news, fake news, all that um, is spread six times faster on social media than, than real news, um, you know, than the truth. 
Um, Because as they make the point of, as I thought so good, I thought it was so good, excuse me, in the Social Dilemma documentary on Netflix right now, one one of them, one person who was being talked to said, yeah, the truth is boring. <laughs> People, you know, the fake news and stuff is so exciting because it's not true. It's it, it's so outlandishly insane that people are just fixated on it, whereas the actual truth of things generally tends to be pretty boring. Okay, so that's the external factors there. And the reason I went into such a, such a role about that is because those things are not, ju- they don't just exist in a vacuum. They don't just exist on their own. These are influencing people. So when you ask me whether there are certain, th- is there something in the human psyche that predisposes certain people to this behavior? Yes. Our fight or flight mechanism, the fight, flight, freeze, you know, that is a uh, something in our human psyche that drives all of this. This is why, you know, if, if we didn't have that, if we were different, the algorithms would be different. They would be feeding us different things. But that is our temperament. We freak out. We are timid. We are, you know, always on the lookout for threats in the environment because, I mean, let's face it, the environment can be pretty threatening and has been in the centuries and millennia in our past where these, you know, where these instincts developed. So, um, so that is something that is uh, in us, that is in all of us. There are no human beings immune to these things that I'm discussing right now. Although, obviously, all of this is on a spectrum. So some people are going to be more into this than other people. Some people are going to be more sensitive to certain kinds of threats than others. That's what trauma and stress and anxiety is all about, is being particularly keyed in or tuned into certain kinds kinds of triggers that have, um, you know, caused you stress and problems and and pain and other things in the past. Um, okay, so those are things that um, that are there. The other thing in terms of the oversharing, and I know you're, you know, where you're going with that is that um, when people get riled up, when the fight or flight mechanism starts getting, you know, poked, right, and, and people start, you know, doing that, they, they, they seek the safety and comfort of others, right? They want a collective support system because that's what can help them get out of sticky situations that they know they themselves cannot get out of or bad head spaces or depressive episodes or, 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 you know, whatever the negative experience is that the person is seeking help with or is looking for some support, that's often why those kind of, you know, people are on social media, tweeting, retweeting, posting, reposting, sharing, you know, various posts. And um, so there's that aspect of it. So that's all the sort of negative getting riled up and freaking out and, you know, wanting support and stuff. Then, of course, there is the other half of this, which has nothing to do with any of that. The other half of this is social standing or social status. And um, this is where virtue signaling comes in. This is where, you know, pushing out content or sharing or liking things that people want other people to notice that's what they're doing. And, and it's pretty subconscious. You know, I mean, we're all seeking the approval of other people. There, None of us are living in a vacuum. So we want other people to like what we're doing. And we have now 
overvalued the opinions of other people that we've never met and don't even know and and might not ever meet, right? These online connections we make. We value their likes, their shares, their retweets, right? We need those little, though we need them clicking the little love heart buttons on our on our Instagram posts. So this is all about seeking social standing, like I mentioned, and and trying to climb social hierarchical ladders, um, because that's what helps us assure our own survival when other people are are booing us up with their support, with their love, with their attention. Then we feel important. Um, they are making us feel important, and uh, we then feel that our survival is more assured. We are we are being supported, right? So, uh, so those sort of needs or those sort of motivators or drivers are sort of are are I think what are the the sort of two key things you see um, being um, demonstrated on social media uh, platforms often. And uh, actually, I think those are those are pretty much exactly how it goes down. And um, and it's just people being people, really. But with uh, things dialed up so high. These days, I think we're seeing a need to maybe walk this back a little bit and maybe bring bring down the temperature a little on these platforms. And hopefully we can figure out some smart ways to do that, starting with the fact of understanding how the platforms work against us, uh, because they do. Let's be real clear about that. These are these 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 social media platforms are not our friends. They are we are their product. We are they, they are not a product we are using. We are their product. And if you don't understand that and that relationship, then social media can become very very. It can be confusing. It can it can be weird, and it can be a really negative experience. And that's what a lot of us have been experiencing, which is why I'm so excited and and into you know, sort of talking about and, and, and propagating this information about how this stuff really works so that we don't have to have those negative experiences. We can understand what's happening and we can act accordingly so we're not negatively affected by it and, and don't understand why. There you go. Mark P. On the topic of sci-fi, are you a fan of the Dune universe? If so, what are your thoughts on the upcoming Dune movie and the recent trailer? Based on the trailer, this looks to be the best adaption so far. Okay, Dune. Yeah, this was a movie that was first uh, introduced to me in 1984 when the when the first David Lynch movie adaption came out. I had been um, only aware of the existence of the Dune trilogy, the the initial f- three books, um, and I think what are a six book series before Frank Herbert died. And I know there have been adaptions and other work done by, I think, Brian Sanderson and Frank Herbert's son, um, where they have written backstories and prequels and things. Dune is a, has always been a bit of an odd duck to me, um, because it is the only movie I've ever been to where I know it was a book, and it, and it started with that, and, and I'll talk about that. But, but my experience with it was the movie, so I'm going to talk about that too. The 1984 movie came out, and it was the only movie that I'd ever seen where a glossary was included with the movie, and um, and it was and it was very very ex, you know it was there was a lot of buildup and hype about that movie before it came out, and my friend uh, had read Dune, and so I was like, ooh, this 
is supposed to be really good. Okay, I'll read the book. So I read it. And I thought the book was all right. Now, in 1984, I was 13, 14 years old. Um, and so a lot of it went over my head in terms of some of the bigger concepts that were being, you know, laid out. The The first book is is sort of... It's a, it's an interesting it, it's interesting how the books are laid out because it's a little counterintuitive in some ways and it sort of it sort of breaks the hero's journey mold quite a bit uh, on purpose as I understand it. The first Dune book is got this Paul Atreides character and he goes through this hero's journey and comes back around and and uh, goes from you know the son of this duke and. And I, you know, I don't think I'm going to be doing a whole lot of spoilers here. I mean, I don't think I need to worry about that. This thing's been out for a long time. So this guy goes out in the desert, um, you know, experiences the change he needs to experience then, and through the conflicts and encounters that he has with various people who have various things to teach him and then comes back around and conquers, you know, those who did the conquering at the beginning and ends up you know, taking over the known universe. And this is often, you know, all people think about with Dune, although there are, there's a lot more to the story. And when I was a kid, after Dune came out, I was just so oddly fascinated by it that I then proceeded to read the rest of the books. And again, a lot of it was kind of flying over my head a bit. I understood it as a sort of um, uh, analogy for, you know, the, the, the spice being sort of analogous to like oil or, you know, gas and stuff. I'd lived through the 1970s when we had, you know, huge gas shortages. And I thought, you know, maybe it was speaking to those kinds of things. And of course, the religious aspects of it and the Bene Gesserit and 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 the the fremen and and their jihad and i mean those things just kind of i didn't really get that stuff i didn't really understand how those things worked well enough to to feel comfortable understanding what that had to do with our society if there was allegory there or what that was all about and it just kind of weirded me out a little bit the i didn't really like the bene gesserit as an organization or as a you know this 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 manipulative core of people of women who were you know doing selective breeding programs and stuff it all just seemed a little weird to me and i didn't i didn't i couldn't really get my teeth into it and then when it when i got to the fourth book with god emperor of dune where paul's son leto the second had you know kind of metamorphosed into this giant sandworm human hybrid i was totally weirded out and by that point herbert was deep down philosophical and religious excuse me, rabbit holes and, and government rabbit holes, you know, government structures and how should how should humans be managed and what's good for people and what's bad for people. I was I was definitely swimming in waters that were deeper than my level of understanding of the story I was reading. So I had um so I was just felt a little swimmy and 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 not really getting it when it came to Dune. All right, so now the new trailer has come out for the new movie, and um, uh, visually, of course, it looks uh, uh, monstrously impressive in the same way Blade Runner 2049 did. There's Denis Villeneuve is is an amazing filmmaker. Uh, Arrival was was blow away as a movie to me. 
and I I like how he does his work. It's very epic. It's very big. It's very broad. He's doing world building. The production values are out the roof. You know the the um, the, the costuming, the design, the the direction of the movie. You know, technically, I'm I'm a hundred percent you know down with this guy. Um, I know it's I know uh, I only watched Blade Runner twenty forty nine once. I probably need to see it again because I really didn't. Uh, make a positive impact on me as it did a lot of people. I, I was not really that impressed by it, but I probably need to see it again. I might have missed some things. But as far as Dune goes, uh, I agree. I think this will be a far better adaption than the 1984 David Lynch monstrosity. I I really don't like that 1984 movie, and I've gone back and looked at a few things and and reviewed some of it. And I also watched the the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries of the Dune adaption, and that was a better adaption of the book. But um, you know, it, it's it, knowing what's coming. I'm always you know I'm always kind of like like Dune as a movie is kind of really good. A Dune as a story is kind of good, but then it goes places in the in the story in the in the books that is just ugh. And I um I just I don't know. I've just never really been able to get my wits around it totally, and I've never really liked the whole um genetic memory thing that the Bene Gesserit had. And I I I don't know. And the you know I I just didn't it it somehow it left me feeling unsatisfied story-wise, I guess I could say. Not just the first book, but the whole structure. And so since I know about the whole structure and where it goes and the fact that the whole story takes place over like 1,500 years, it's, it's well beyond the story of any one person or one in you know group of people. It's, it's, it's quite a complicated, you know, vast tale. And... Um, and it's just not my not 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 totally up my alley. But I am looking forward to this new movie adaption. Just to just just visually, I think it'll be interesting to watch, and uh, and we'll see what he does with it. Hey everyone, I wanted to take this opportunity to talk to you about a service that I am endorsing and that I truly truly believe in, and that service is called Better Help. H E L P. Better Help, and they are av- available through BetterHelp.com. And this is a service that connects you with a licensed professional counselor online so you can get help with depression, anxiety, stress, or just somebody to talk to in this very, basically, very troubled times that we're living in right now. It is not easy to get out there in the big wide world right now. It is not easy to get out and see therapists or counselors. It is not easy to find counselors or therapists who can help you. And this is what BetterHelp was designed to assist you with. The simplicity of this is you go to the site, you sign up, actually you use the link <laughs> that I have provided below, uh, which is betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton, and you get signed up. And this can be for as little as $40 a week, and they actually even have uh, financial aid available. You enter some information, fill out a questionnaire about yourself, and you get hooked up with a counselor that will help you out. And this can be via text, via voice, or via a video. Okay, any one of those. It's up to you and your comfort level. 
And if the therapist that you get connected with isn't doing the job that you feel you need, you can ask for and get a different counselor. So there are a lot of options for you in this, and it is really something that I think a lot of my viewers should be taking advantage of. I have talked often about the need for or the help that you can get through professional counseling. Sometimes you need somebody who really does know what they're doing and not just a friend or family member to listen. And that's why this service is something that I am happy to put out there for you guys. So again, use the link below, betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton. That is in the description to this video. And I hope that you um, can get the help that you might need from this service. Let me know how it goes. Cyprian Ivanov, if previously clear Scientologists are sent to redo their levels because Miscavige claims that the training was imperfect, how are past life clears considered legitimate? Okay, so Scientology past life clears. So uh, let's be let's first be clear about something because uh, I'm not totally I'm not totally sure based on how you worded your question, Cyprian, whether this is understood or not. But clear is a is a product of auditing, not training. So bad training on the part of auditors in the past led to. Um, people thinking they were clear, who were audited by those auditors and and supervised by the, you know, the case supervisors who were overseeing their progress, but it wasn't a lack of training on the part of the clear or the person who's claiming to be a past life clear. Training doesn't really have a whole lot to do with whether you're clear or not. Clear is a state you achieve through auditing, and it's supposed to be the removal of your reactive mind. That part of your mind which stores all the moments of pain and unconsciousness and has deep, deep um, implants or, or or parts of it that are that are mechanisms that are you that are that are run in a stimulus response mechanism, a stimulus response fashion to feed these moments of pain and unconsciousness back to you like hypnotic commands so that you are not, you do not have free will, you do not have the ability to, or what they call in Scientology, self-determinism. That's what it means to not be clear. And when you get rid of this reactive mind, when you've sort of delved in and, and run out all the stuff you need to run out to get rid of it, then you are now, have achieved this state of clear, where you can think faster and easier, sort of Hubbard makes analogies to a supercomputer thing, and, and um, you're, not, you're supposed to have eidetic memory, and you're supposed to not get sick, and, you know, blah, 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 all this nonsense. Well, that is, um, like I said, that's a processing or an auditing product. So, the way this worked when in the early 2000s, around 2003 or 4, Miscavige started coming down with this idea that people who had claimed past life clear status couldn't really be clear. And the reason why is because um, Miscavige claimed that the only way you could be clear was to have run Dianetics. So if you had not run any Dianetics this lifetime, and you didn't run any Dianetics last lifetime, you didn't claim that you had, if that wasn't part of your 
um, communication about how you were audited in a past life and how you achieved the state of clear, if you didn't highlight in detail the Dianetics auditing that you received, then Miscavige said, well, then there's no way you can be clear because it's only Dianetics that clears people, not Scientology processes. There's Dianetics, there's Scientology. They address problems in a slightly different way. Scientology is addressing the spirit directly. Dianetics is addressing these engrams, these moments of pain and unconsciousness. Dianetics is all about rooting out the engrams. It's all, it's all locked down in your reactive mind because of the pain and the unconsciousness and the trauma of the incidents. Scientology approaches things from a very different way. Scientology has you recall things and, and look to things in the past but um, it's more of a, it's a lighter form of auditing in many, many ways. It also includes different kinds of auditing. Scientology auditing has uh, objective processes as well as subjective processes, and we've talked about this in the past, so I won't go into too much more detail. But this differentiation of Dianetics versus Scientology was the, was the sort of curve that Miscavige entered in, and he said that if people had said they had a, they were past life clears or they had had these tremendous blowout, head-blowing, mind-expanding gains and wins in their auditing and thought they were clear, well, that's, you know, good. We're really glad you had that win or you had those gains. But if you haven't run out in grams, then you can't be clear. And so that's when this whole formal review process started back again in 2003 or four, and people started getting at RTC direction, um, people started being called in and told, hey, we reviewed all your auditing, and it turns out you're not actually clear. We thought you were, you thought you were, but no, you, you didn't. Uh, what you had was what's called a release. That great big win you had or those series of gains that you had that you thought were clear. No, they were really great. We're not trying to take away from that, but there's more auditing to be done because it doesn't look like we have evidence here that you've actually achieved the state of clear. And even if they had said the clear cognition that they had felt somehow during the course of their auditing, if they originated or said the words, somehow communicating the idea, hey, you know, I think I'm actually mocking up this reactive mind. I think I'm the one creating it. Mocking up means creating in Scientology. I think, I think, I think this reactive mind only exists because I'm putting it here. I don't have to do that anymore. You know, something like that. If you say those words or something like that, then that is called the clear cognition, and that's supposed to indicate you've achieved the state of clear. Um, so even if they had said that, without the Dianetics, sorry, can't be that way, and we're going to have to go back and run you on Dianetics. And this even included people who had proceeded on to do the OT levels. They'd gone on through the Xenu story, or even all the way up to OT8, and they still have a reactive mind, according to... David Miscavige, and so they had to go back down and run some Dianetics to get that revalidated so they could then, they would not then have to redo their OT levels, they'd already done them, unless the review of their auditing found some other problem with their OT levels. This didn't immediately invalidate all the auditing they've ever had, it was just you didn't get this all the way. And of course, 
and kind of obviously this was a pretty big money grab. <laughs> and they made a lot of money off these people from 2003 to about 2000, I don't know, uh, seven or eight or something. There was this whole big international thing and all the clears got called in pretty much and and uh, and paid various amounts of money to redo Dianetics and go clear again. So that's how that uh, whole thing went down. Lucky seven. I would like to know what you think the end game is. Most religions don't allow abortion or birth control because they want to make more of their kind. You think Miscavige isn't interested in gaining any more members, so what is going on? There's the real estate aspect. If the Church of Scientology crashed and burned, what could David Miscavige actually walk away with as his own personal fortune? Do you think he's hiding funds? Okay, so I get asked this all the time, and um, and I've answered it many, many times, but I'd like to say now, um, in taking this question up, that what, what I don't think people quite seem to understand is that what's happening right now is the end game. David Miscavige being, living the life of Riley, having endless amounts of money and resources and people to abuse and, and rain you know, this this sort of reign of terror that he gets to engage in uh, running Scientology internationally, that is the end game. That's all he wants out of this is money and power and influence. And he's got tons of all of those things. So there isn't any, there isn't any other goal in sight. This is the goal. He's living the life. He's living the dream of the cult leader. And he's getting away with murder. He's getting away with everything. And um, that's that's all he wants, you know. So if things were to go south, of course, David Miscavige has contingency plans in place. There's no way he wouldn't. I mean, would if you were him, would you just be flying by the seat of your pants? You'd, you'd probably have some things in place. He's got properties around the world. Um, he's got apartments and, and probably homes or, or properties. I mean, hell, he might even own an island for all we know. Johnny Depp does. Jeffrey Epstein does, did. I mean, apparently it's, you know, if you got the money, it's not that hard to buy an island. So maybe Miscavige even has that. Nobody's ever mentioned or alluded to it, but who knows? You know, the thing about Scientology that, and, and, and pretty much all destructive cults to, to one degree or another, but specifically Scientology, is that it's the compartmentalization of information, the way information has been contained partitioned off from the membership, right, and even Miscavige's inner circle is so good that, you know, Miscavige could could have properties or money or, you know, uh, contingency plans all set up with non-Scientology lawyers who he's paid, a, a, you know, a, a very, very big amount of money to for their silence and their competence at the, in the legal division, right? Um he could have all that set up, and and if if you were him, if I were him, then of course we would be thinking along those lines and would set that kind of thing up. Um, and in the meantime, running the hell out of the organization you got for you know whatever your kink is for whatever it is that he wants out of people, which seems to be to lord his power and authority over them. So, um, so when you ask, you know, where's this all going? That's it. That really is the whole picture. And that's why I say that because Miscavige doesn't 
demonstrate that he actually believes in Scientology. He's a, none of the things he does indicate that he is actually interested in following in um, in Hubbard's with Hubbard's intent. Um, there's a ton of things Miscavige is not doing that if you were a true believer of Scientology, you, you'd be doing certain things. And Miscavige isn't doing any of those things and hasn't for decades. I mean, the last time the man went into an auditing session himself, according to, you know, the best data we have was 1993, 94 maybe, um, if then. I mean, that's, that was well over 25 years ago. And so how is that possible? That he's not getting any auditing when auditing is the heart and soul of Scientology. He's not a a class 12 auditor either. What's up with that? Every Scientologist and Sea Org member is supposed to rise all the way to the top of the training and auditing sides of the Scientology bridge. And Miscavige is doing no such thing, nor is he demanding or pushing all Scientologists to do that. In fact, just the opposite. He makes working conditions such that it's almost impossible for Sea Org members and Scientology staff to go up the bridge. So that's not, you know, following L. Ron Hubbard's directions. Um, and there is very, very little of Scientology's money spent on actual promotion and marketing of Scientology. And look at the toxic reputation Scientology has. Miscavige could solve these problems if he were competent effective or interested in doing so. But I don't think he's so grossly incompetent and so stupid that he doesn't know these things or be or that he's not able to figure them out. And while his ego might be the thing that's getting in the way, and it could just be that simple that it's nothing but an ego trip, the end result is the same. Whether I'm right or wrong about his intent, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what his intent is because whether through competence or incompetence, purposeful or not, he's running Scientology into the ground. And um, but he's taking a, he's doing it on the long route. You know, he's doing the long, slow burn. And I think he's got things gauged in his mind in such a way that as long as this continues for the rest of his natural life, he's set. What does he care about anybody else? He's never demonstrated. The entire time that we've seen and heard everything about Miscavige, not once has he demonstrated that he cares about anyone else but himself. Do you really think that's ever going to change? You know, do we think he's going to be visited by the <laughs> by the ghosts of Scientology, past, present, and future? No, <laughs> I don't. And uh, and so when I when people ask me about this, I always say, well, this th- this is it. And there you go. Peg Gantz. In August, I was helping out with an information table at a local festival being held at the Empire State Plaza in Albany. When I checked in with an organizer for our table location, one of the nearby tables was Hubbard Dianetics. I found it very interesting that there was no Scientology designation to be found, although I did observe a number of LRH books, including Dianetics. Is this something new, or did they choose not to use Scientology because it was a government-organized event? Okay, well, Peg, what you usually have is Dianetics is usually put out there as a frontline um, promotional thing to, uh, one, sell Dianetics books, and two, get people interested in L. Ron Hubbard. And the idea is, in the within the world of Scientology, they know that Dianetics was the first thing of Hubbard's that really hit the world 
by storm. They call it the bolt from the blue. And it was this big deal. It was an, it was a legit bestseller. So, and then they got that going again in the mid-1980s with the Dianetics marketing campaign, the, the, the question ads, and, the, and they got a legit bestseller again. So they know Dianetics has this potential of you know, it kind of hitting people where they live when it comes to questions about themselves and their mind and life. So they will try to recreate that by only promoting Dianetics as the first thing a person should see or read in order to get on the bridge and, and move on into Scientology. Dianetics comes first, Scientology comes second. This is one of many marketing ploys they use. They've also got the personality test, the friends and family line, the Scientology life improvement courses. There's a lot of first steps you can take to get onto and into Scientology, but Dianetics is legit one of them. And so this is why you see it pushed at flea markets and and at government-sponsored events where they might have religious you know, problems, if there was some sort of First Amendment issue, then sure, they'll, they'll, bring, they'll bring the Dianetics. And Dianetics is promoted as a science, not a religion. So they can, you know, they, even the Church of Scientology can come and promote Dianetics only and not be pushing religion on people. So that's, that's sort of the idea there. All right, let's do some flash answers. Jane Smith. How much is Narconon emphasized to members, or is it mainly pushed as an outside organization? No, Narconon is mainly pushed for drug rehab. Um, Scientologists would not go to a Narconon unless they had a real drug problem that they were trying to get over. You could always just go into a regular Church of Scientology and do the same things they're doing at a Narconon um, because they have the purification sauna detox program at the church and all the classes work that they do at a Narconon. Those are all based on Scientology courses that you could do at any Church of Scientology. So, so if a Scientologist has a, a you know a, a minor drug relapse, or if they have some attention on drugs in their body or something, they've come off drugs, let's say five years ago. They've 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 they didn't have to do rehab; they just kind of kicked the habit, and then they come into Scientology. And Scientology says, yeah, we have this detox program. They would not send that person to Narconon. They would just have them do it in the local church. So um, Narconon is for non-Scientologists almost, almost exclusively. Maxwell, would you agree that the way governments rule directly affect the attitude and culture of the generation in which it rules? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, uh, government rule is one of the many influencers on how and and why people act the way they do. They're, I mean, it's a major thing uh, in terms of how much you know you're being taxed, what the government is doing in terms of schools, public facilities, hospitals, firefighters, police. I mean, the the legal system. Government touches us in a number of ways. So I don't know how there could be any way that a, that that the way a government goes about its rule, I don't see how how that couldn't touch every single one of its citizens in in a fairly significant way. Tyler Simmons, in Scientology, can a person who is not a Scientologist be declared a suppressive person? 
No, generally speaking, that does not happen. In fact, I've never once heard of a non-Scientologist being officially, formally declared in writing uh, as a suppressive person. They will be called a suppressive person or suppressive or other names, um, but officially declared, no. That's generally just for Scientologists. Okay, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me go on here. I really very, very, very much appreciate your viewership and your support. And um, I am now officially a postgraduate university student, uh, University of Salford in in the UK. I will be attending um, starting this month, and that's happening. So pretty pumped about that. That's going to be an online, full-time, one-year course, and that's going. it wasn't free. <laughs> and so, in addition to keeping the lights on and the show going here, if any of you are at all interested in supporting me in my education, then I would very much appreciate that. You can do so through Patreon or through PayPal. Links are below in the description section to this video and on all of my videos. Thanks for listening, guys, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.